I am Bob Bazanis. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> to the grace of God and the power of AA, I haven't had a drink since the 10th of December 1967. For that, I'm very grateful. Yeah, I was looking for someone named George at the airport. And, uh, one of my fifth step things was I, I had a brief relationship with a guy, with a person named George, and it, but it wasn't this person. And, uh, I don't know why I didn't, you know, when you said George, that I, you know, didn't pick you right out in the crowd. But, uh, so, well, that was nice. I'm glad my plane was delayed and I was a little bit worried about, uh, whether I was going to make it in time. There are a lot of people in this room I know and love and care about, and that's kind of nice. And, uh, see if I can get my head back where it should be and get, you know, get it kind of in here. Uh, I took my first drink with alcohol when I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school. And uh, I went to a military academy that was on a college campus. And we drank in high school. We had fraternities, and we drank in high school like most people drink in college. We were just a heavy drinking. I grew up in a kind of a Catholic enclave. We had, you know, just these large clans. Everybody had, you know, somewhere between 5 and 15 kids. You know, that's really true. I mean, we really, I mean, they were large families, which was really kind of cool. I, I still live in the town I was born in, which is nice. There's a lot of people I went to grade school with. And, I never realized that Catholics drank a lot. I, you know, a lot. And, uh, and, uh, but I liked it. I liked it from the very first time I did it. I was an insecure kid. I was four foot eleven when I entered high school, and I kind of had a big mouth to compensate for. I felt like everybody else got to school an hour early and held the meeting and decided what was going to go on during the day, and I missed the meeting. And I kind of spent the rest of the day saying, "Hell of a meeting, wasn't it?" You know, I mean, you know, hoping. Hoping that you'd discuss what happened at the meeting. And, uh, trying to catch up. I don't know why I felt like everybody else always seemed to know what was going on and I didn't. I just, you know, there's that kind of insecurity. I don't think that's just alcoholic. I think that's everybody, but we sometimes experience those normal feelings in an exaggerated way. And I did. I was always trying to, you know, I got to be a marginal member of the in-group, which meant I was kind of on the outskirts of it, but even after I, even when I was there, I kind of felt like I was there because I was being what everybody else wanted me to be. And if I, you know, altered that or wasn't quite cool as John or you're saying, you know, I really wouldn't want me anymore. But one night we went out and a friend of mine had a fifth and we flipped that fifth. And my life changed. I, I, I had that experience of a sense of ease and comfort that I had, you know, up till that time. It was like I found the secret. It was just, you know, I went back to alcohol at every opportunity I had after that. It just, it just brought everything together. I don't know why I was a kid. I, uh, I'm the father of three alcoholics. Uh, I am the son of an alcoholic. I have a brother who's an alcoholic. It's kind of rampant. As near as I can tell, I'm fifth generation of alcoholism in my family. Just my, our family historian died about two years ago. Which I always wish I would have written some of this stuff down. I remember she telling me that my great-great-grandfather came over here from Switzerland. And he was the black sheep of a kind of a nice family in Switzerland. And he came over here with a wife and five kids, and he sent in a magazine for a cure for alcoholism, and he drank it, and it killed it. And, uh, <clears throat> my great-grandfather. And, uh, but I thought, you know, not only did the genes of alcoholism, but, you know, and then I think of my great-grandmother with five kids, you know, at, at 25 years of age, you know, having to raise five kids and open a bakery to go do that. A lot of alcoholism in my family, and I was the first recovery in our family. I'll tell you, there's patterns in families, and but once you 
once you can bring recovery into a family, you can change patterns too. There's a hell of a lot of recovery that's starting to happen in my family, and I, I hope that that's the start of a lot of it. But I drank my brains out. I loved every bit of it. I don't know why I was a kid who had, you know, I felt like I, would, I had my amplifier up around nine and a half. It was just like this loud noise in my head. I don't know why that was. I, you know, I seemed to be relatively normal in most other respects. My motor always ran a little hot as I was talking with Marianne and talking about it. But when I took my first drink, it was like someone took the control, the volume control on my amplifier and turned it down to about four. <laughs> and I could then participate. I could hear other people and be with other people. And uh, it was really great. And I, you know, drank my brains out. I said in high school, by the time I finished high school, everybody was talking about my drinking problem. Of my five closest buddies in high school, four of us are in AA and one's in Alana. And that was my... Uh, the Al-Anon was my college roommate. We went to Notre Dame together, and he was my, my college roommate. So we, and, and I think the least of the five of us have uh, 20 years. You know, so that we had a lot of alcoholism, had a hell of a lot of recovery. Pretty lucky, pretty lucky guy. I didn't think I had a drinking problem. I thought you were kind of in a bad place if you were young because you were underage. It was just an old legal thing to do, you know. And uh, you know, if you got caught by the cops or my father, you were in deep trouble if you got caught drinking. And I never wanted to get caught with one or two drinks. It never made sense to me to get in the kind of trouble I got into when I was caught drinking. So I drank a lot when I drank, thinking that when I got someplace where I was allowed to drink, my drinking would become normal. You know, so I went away to school thinking my drinking would become normal. It didn't happen. I just. Uh, once I got away from home, it just kind of accelerated a notch. And I was went to the University of Notre Dame, walked out of it in the middle of my senior year. And uh, I was the class drunk. I was in civil engineering, had three guys petitioned to have me removed from the civil engineering school at Notre Dame. I was to use my room as a study hall because I wasn't in it very often. And uh, I didn't start out, you know, that was really always, that was a... Uh, a big sense of failure for me. I had a, I, I think of Frank, who used to be a good friend of mine, and uh, your, your, your speaker tomorrow night. And uh, so Frank was, uh, well, the first time I went back to Notre Dame, you know, when you ask drunk normal questions, they aren't normal. Like, they ask, where did you go to school? And there's this long pause. And it isn't, it, it isn't as if you don't have an answer to where you went to school. It's just that you don't know how much time they have or how really interested they are. You know, are you married? And there's this pause, you know. And, uh, you know, do you work? You know, I mean, there's, I mean, these are, you know, do you have kids? You know, I mean, and they get this perplexed look, you know. But I always had this, you know, this, where did you go to school? Who gives a damn where you went to school? But I had this deal because I didn't finish Notre Dame, and I finished it. It was always this, you know, kind of a dicey thing, what do I say, what, you know, and I just felt like it was kind of unfinished. So I went down, Frank, when I, I got asked to go back to the University of Notre Dame to give an AA talk, and I was down there, and Frank was nice enough to come with me, and he, we had known each other, I think, two or three years at that time, and, and I went down, I was going to make some amends, and it was really kind of a... It was a, a meaningful weekend for me, but I'm right in the middle of my AA talk, and I said, I've always had a sense of failure about this place. And I said, I, I just figured out why. I said, I think it's because I failed. <laughs> so, if, you're, if you're looking for insights tonight, this might not, you know, you might want to go catch a nap or watch at your room or something like that. But I uh, I just couldn't shut it off. I, I literally was the class drunk. I was the guy who kind of felt like I had to keep the campfire going during the week. Everybody came back on Fridays. The fire was still going. And 
And uh, I was going to be commissioned as an officer in the Army when I got out of Notre Dame. I had to get a medical release. The medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed as an alcoholic when I was 19 years old. And, God, that seemed impossible to me. I was, you know, Johnny talked about, you know, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists. I had a psychiatrist who diagnosed me as an alcoholic, not a rare animal. He knew about alcoholism, wrote a pamphlet on it. At 18 or 19 years old, he diagnosed me, recommended that I either went to treatment or went to AA. Kind of an interesting guy. Just from time to time over the years, he's still living. He'd have me go call on some of his patients that were in the psych ward, and I'd go bring them to AA meetings. He knew I wouldn't play doctor. I, I did early in my life, but I never played doctor later. And uh, uh, I just brought him to meetings. And uh, so I got out of the Army with the medical release, and I showed up back at home to a set of real disappointed parents, and I finished school at, at a local university. And when I finished school, my father asked me to leave home. Uh, and he said, you know, we love you and we care about you, but you just really get pain in the neck. And, you know, there's six other kids in the family, and you're really a bad example, and good luck. And uh <laughs> kind of how it went. And uh, I went out to, you know, I got a job at a liquor store. I'm working at a, you know, kind of, I, I don't know if I'm going to go to Vietnam. I'm, I'm you know, uh, I think God blessed me. I was... uh uh, when I got out of the Army, I had to go back. I took the physical. I got accepted in officer candidate school. I'm just about to go in officer candidate school, and the guard unit opened up. And I went down to, to get in the guard unit. They lost my physical, so they said, why don't you just take it again? So I took it for the fifth time and failed it. And, you know, I don't know why that happened to me, but got out of the service. Didn't have to go to Vietnam. And uh, then I got a job as an executive trainee with a manufacturing concern, and I thought, well, it's really going to happen. You know, I'm finally going to become what I always wanted to be when I grew up, only it didn't happen because I continued to drink, and I just could not stop my drinking. And, uh, you know, that last year of my drinking was just a nightmare. I worked as a, after the liquor store, I worked at a, as a waiter at a uh, club, and I, you know, was drinking all day long, drank a fifth most days, and you know, get up in the morning, drink a couple of beers, so we'll go to work from 10 to 2, work as a waiter. At 2 o'clock, I'd go to a bar and drink beer from 2 to 5, and at 5, I'd go buy a half pint or a pint. And somewhere during that day, I'd figure out where I was going to live or stay. And uh, that, uh, you know, Dr. Seuss, that child, those are actual photographs of people I lived with during that <laughs> period of time in my life. It was uh, a strange group. And, uh, one night I was at a party and I got my face kicked in and uh, I got fired as a waiter and I, I went home. I don't play. I hadn't been home in about six months and I asked my family if I could move back in the house and on the condition that I wouldn't drink, they let me back in the house. And uh, I couldn't not drink, but I, you know, what I would. And I, you know, alcoholism meant a lot of different things to me. Maybe what it meant more than anything else is about every six months I had to start over. You know, most everybody in this room who has alcoholism or Problem with drugs knows a lot about starting over. A lot of us don't know a lot about finishing, but we know a lot about starting over. And I really thought if I could restructure my life, I got back together with Linda, who today is my lovely wife, and I had gone with for a couple of years and broken up with for almost a year, and we became engaged, we married, and I got a job as an executive trainee, bought my first car, and I, you know, I all I wanted to do was become an adult. My uh, father was my hero. He died about four years ago. And he was uh, like that Second World War crew that came back that just, to me, made life look interesting and easy. You know, they drank hard, they played hard, they had big families, they started businesses, they were just, you know, they were attractive men and women. You know, they, you know, it wasn't much about that I didn't like. And they had all these cocktail parties and they had a pretty good time. 
and uh, I just wanted to be like them, only I could never, you know, could not shut it down, you know. So I got a job with this manufacturing concern, and I'm, you know, big corporations are tough for young alcoholics. They got rules, like they have to come in on Mondays and stay on, <laughs> stay on Fridays, and they got lunch, you know, it's not a lot of structure. And, uh, you know, I used up my sick leave the first two months. Now I'm a company drunk. I'm in a company of engineers. I'm in a research department. And I'm, you know, I'm falling asleep at my desk. I'm falling asleep in the john. I'm just sleeping off my hangovers in the dark room. I'm just, I'm in trouble. You know, I mean, I'm really in trouble. Quit that job after five months, took a sales job. And I have the sales job about four weeks. And I go out on a three-day drunk. A buddy of mine gets married. Weddings were always good for about a week. And, uh, uh, so I wake up Thursday, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, not done to work Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and I don't know if I have a job, a fiancé, or a place to live, but I just, all of a sudden, I'm panicked, and I, you know, all of a sudden, the recommendation that I call AA didn't seem like such a dumb idea, I called out all these time. And I got an old-timer, the name of Stu, down the central office, and he talked to me for about five minutes, and then he got on the line, called another guy, and he said, could, could you go meet a couple of guys at a cafe in about an hour? And I said, yeah, I could go meet him. And uh, I called into work and found out I had a job and called Linda and found out I was still engaged and called home and found out they were concerned, which is better than mad. And uh, I thought, why the hell did you call Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, you're not, you know, I mean, that's, you know, kind of an overreaction. You know, you're just, just feeling guilty. I could always tell when I felt guilty, I was breathing, you know, and, uh, but I wanted to go see what an alcoholic looked like, so I went and met these two guys. It was sometime in July 1967, and I went to this cafe about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I met a guy by the name of Warren, who was not the Warren who's my sponsor, but this Warren had six years, and, and uh, no, Warren had six months, and Bob had six years. And you know, when you're young, you get bounced in front of a lot of people for help, lawyers, judges, attorneys, priests, bishops, you know, doctors, psychologists, you know, and... Uh, I've been in front of an awful lot of people. My family was really trying to find out why I keep looking like I was trying to kill myself or screw my life up. And, you know, usually when you're in front of someone that's trying to help you, they ask you a hell of a lot of questions or they ask your family a lot of questions. You are not always asked to participate, even though you are the subject of the conversation. And uh, then they ask all these questions and they come up with a recommendation. And I, you know, I'm 23 years old. I'm going to go meet these guys. They're a little older than I am. And I think they're going to sit me down and ask me a bunch of questions. But they didn't do that. They were good members of Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, we're from AA. We had a, a drinking problem. We found our answer in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're here as much for ourselves as we are for you. Well, for some reason, we find that trying to tell someone else about what we did seems to help us stay sober. So don't worry about it. There's no pressure on you. You know, if it works for you and you'd like to go to a meeting, that's great. They weren't getting a toaster for signing me up. It wasn't a multi-level marketing deal, you know. It was just, uh, we have a lot of traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe one of the most profound of which is that we share our experience, strength, and hope, and not our thinking. And not, I don't mean that in the sense, but not our concept. We are not, you know, not our ideology. These men shared their life with me. There's a power in sharing your life with another person. I believe that that day, my life was altered by these two men telling me their story. I had never, prior to that, talked to another person with a drinking problem. And there was something about two men freely talking about what I was hiding and felt so dirty about and felt so ashamed of, and they had a clarity about it, and they had an answer. Their whole 
everything about them just shouted that they had an answer. And they asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting of AA, and I did that that night. I drank twice after walk, after walking in that meeting of AA, once on a business trip to the West Coast, when I was supposed to call AA, and I didn't, and I stayed sober a week and drank a week. Then I got sober again for three months, and I went on our honeymoon, and I drank in Mexico on our honeymoon. And, uh, you know, where the divers dive off those cliffs in Mexico, I dove off those cliffs on my last drunk. I was in the audience watching a world high diving contest, and I thought, I uh, dove off the public landing, climbed up the cliff, I split my swimsuit, I cut my leg, my wife going absolutely nuts. We are married four days, and this horse's ass is climbing up this cliff, and I got stuck about 85 feet up, and I couldn't get up, and I could you can't climb down, I mean, this is not, I mean, you can't, I mean, you're just, you know, up there, and I'm trying to decide whether to jump or dive, and i watching the waves come in and out, and finally I figured out the hell with it, and I dove, and, uh, if I would have jumped, I would have died. Because you can't jump far enough. And I didn't know that. You know, the Norm used to talk about seconds and inches, you know, and I that was standing up on top of that cliff. Ten years later, I was up there with Linda, and we we went back there on vacation a lot with the kids. And she gave me a picture that said, but for the grace of God, it was a picture of that chasm where I dove. And I said, God, that's the dumbest thing I ever did. And she said, honey, it's not even in the top ten. <laughs> so, I don't... She, uh... I don't know how two people can share a life and have a, such a different perspective on it. I, it's a, but it is a problem of communication. I've been, I was a little overweight and I've been trying to get some exercise. I thought I'd get a bike and she was encouraging me to get a bike and I, I did and then she got real up. I got a Harley. And, uh, as much as I try to do, you know, it just seems like it's never enough. I don't know what the hell. She does not like that story. She thinks that it's fabricated. It's still irritated with me about the Harley. So I bought a second bike. I one in Texas and one in Minnesota. And uh, so I came back. I got sober, and I'm going to be in the Alcoholics Anonymous. I last think I had was on the airplane on the way home, December 10th, 1967. And uh, you know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous not knowing what an alcoholic was and not knowing that I was an alcoholic. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was as disgusted with myself as I have ever... I just hated myself. I was so tired of hurting everybody that was in my life. I mean, I just, you know, it seemed like I wasted all my, or a lot of my family's funds when I, you know, screwed up Notre Dame and I cracked up automobiles that I had. You know, I was spending more on car insurance than most people spend on homes, you know, in those days. And I was just, I was just always in trouble. And I didn't like, I mean, I was, my sister got her graduate degree at the Sorbonne. My brother was Phi Beta Kappa in law school. And I, I mean, I wanted, you know, to do okay. But I was just, I was a family, you know, problem. And I, I really did not like that. I was standing out, you know, seven of us and I'm, you know, standing out like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I, I don't, it wasn't much fun. Once or twice a year, the family gathered together and, you know, you're, Father's yelling at you, your mother's hysterical, and your brothers and sisters, you know, a couple of them are crying, and, you know, they wish the hell you weren't in the family. Not those fun family meetings. I mean, it was not, I didn't like who I was. I really didn't like who I was. And, uh, I didn't like who I hung with. I didn't like the results that I did. I didn't like my behavior. I didn't like, you know, I had high values, but, you know, was a long ways away from living by the standards that I was brought up by. And it's just that high cost of low living. And I, uh, uh, and I'll tell you something, I, 
the thing that really uh, caught me about Alcoholics Anonymous is I remember uh, when I came in, they told me that I had a, uh, that my problem wasn't drinking. As John talked about, my problem was alcoholism, but the symptom of drinking was alcohol, uh, the symptom of alcoholism was drinking. But they said, well, you've got alcoholism, you've got a threefold disease. It's physical, but it's also mental and spiritual. And then once you cross the line from problem drinking into alcoholism, your alcoholism affects you all the time, when you drink and when you don't drink. Boy, <laughs> was that a piece of me? I know, I mean, it really was, because it was confusing me. When they told me when I was 19 years old that I was an alcoholic, I thought they were telling me, as they mostly did, that I had a drinking problem, you know. Just before I went back to my senior year in Notre Dame, I was... Uh, beaten up and rolled and shot at and thrown out of the second story of a hotel, ended up in the state of shock. I don't know what I was in the state of shock. Ended up in a hospital. They were going to put me in a psych ward and not let me go back to school. They let me go back to school in the condition that I wouldn't drink, and I went back and I didn't drink for three months. And my life didn't instantaneously get better. I didn't all of a sudden become what I thought you were telling me. I'd become if I just wouldn't drink. I didn't become an A student and a model. Everybody assumed, I thought everybody assumed that if I just wouldn't drink, I'd be gangbusters. I got so I kind of liked drinking and people assuming I'd be okay, and it was kind of kind of a hell of a lot of pressure that if I ever sobered up, I'd have to be something that I'm not so damn sure that. And I think there's a lot of us that are damn scared about the expectations in our lives that sobriety brings. So, uh, you know, so I didn't, you know, I thought they were telling me what was wrong with me with swallowing bourbon if I ever stopped swallowing bourbon, but, you know, I, me- I remember the conversation I had with Warren M., who is my sponsor, who at 40, uh, four years of sobriety. We celebrated 44 years in August. And Warren sat me down and said, look, physical, mental, and spiritual. He said, in my mind, he said, it's, the physical is only 10% of the deal. And I can remember that conversation because it seemed impossible to me. I thought the physical part was 10%. I mean, I thought, I thought we'd be having a lot of conversations about how not to drink. Now, wouldn't you think if you were not an alcoholic anonymous and you were coming in and you had a drinking problem, and one of the things we'd be doing is talking about how not to drink. Almost not a conversation at all. The conversation's about how to live so that you don't go back to drinking. So what he said is what we do in AA is we use the 12 steps to change so that we don't have to go back to drugs or booze to do something for us that we're unwilling or unable to do for ourselves. If you don't change, you're going to go back to drinking if you don't know how to live without it. When you talk about getting a piece of truth dropped in your lap, I mean, that was my piece of truth. That put it together. That seemed as solid as anything that seems as solid today as anything that I heard. So now I'm 24 years old. I'm in AA, and I thought, this is wonderful. I've been a screw-up all my life. You know, high expectations, low performance, you know, starting over, never able to get, you know, get it on the road and keep it on the road. But now I know what my problem is. My problem is alcoholism. You know, and I'm in a place that's got an answer for alcoholism. So I got the problem. You got the answer. Hang on, baby. We're going on a trip. This is going to be wonderful. And my story is a little different than John. I used to drink, had a lot of problems. I stopped drinking. I've never had any more problems. <laughs> I don't think they're buying that right now, John, but we're going to get into this. But you know what's funny? When AA talks, in my experience, have evolved. Uh, 30 years ago, AA talks were drunk a lot. Most of them. They started with the first drink, ended with your last. You got the impression that the person stopped drinking and his life was okay. That really was the message. And I don't I don't think there was any... Uh, that was the message. Uh, and you could tell by the way the person told that story that something profound had altered that person. I mean, there was 
clearly, even though they didn't maybe talk specifically about the spiritual, you could tell that God reached down and touched that person because they were not the same person. They were not didn't have the same qualities. They were altered. And as a result of being altered, and they, you know, a lot of times had a wife sitting next to them or kids in the audience, and you could tell their lives were different. But people didn't talk a hell of a lot about what went on in sobriety. That old man that he talked about started to change what talk was and how he sounded. A lot of people criticized that old man for talking about not just telling a story. But that man broke ice for an awful lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous and he started telling about recovery and he started telling about the spiritual. Started talking about things about how that change happened in our lives. And I'm so grateful. Today, what you're hearing more and more is you're hearing a talk because people are getting sober when they're 15, 18, 20 years old. And, you know, then I stopped drinking and if you want to know, then what? You know, I mean, I've been sober 15 or 20 or 25 years, and I, you know, and the message, you know, I used to sit in audiences. I remember the first time I heard John. John looked at Chamberlain brought him to go up the stage. The first time I ever heard him. And this was probably 25 years ago. And John, to me, looked like a guy Chamberlain found at the country club because he was having trouble with his surf. He, I mean, he did. I mean, just blue eye. He looked brand new. He did not look like he came out of a penitentiary. I mean, I thought, I didn't know who the hell he was. I'd not heard his story, and he's, you know, a pretty handsome guy. I have a resentment that he's about a sick handicap. I don't, I don't understand how a guy that spent all that time in jail could have a sick handicap. I mean, there is no, you know, I mean, that's, you know, it's not fair. It's just flat ass not fair. And then John told the story. And, uh, he literally tore me apart. I just, I, maybe because his story was so profoundly different than what I expected his story to be. And I was a guy, when I was about five years sober, when I heard John, Maybe seven years ago when I gave up that. I'll come back to that in a minute. So now I'm an AA. And I'm thinking, I got the problem, you got the answer. Well, I got a half a dozen other things that are going on in my life that are driving me nuts. You know, that are list of problems. And if you've got the answer, those things ought to be cleared up. And hell, it might take a year. You know. <laughs> but why the hell wouldn't that be reasonable? If drinking's your problem, that's what you think. You know, a little bit. I didn't, you know, even though I was told the words that drinking wasn't my problem, drinking was a symptom, but you know, that I had to deal with the mental and spiritual aspects of the disease, I kind of had this idea that I had a drinking problem, I'm not drinking, and now it should be better. Okay. So now the issues, the issues I had were horrible but ordinary. I couldn't get up in the morning. Set the alarm clock for 7 o'clock, get up about a quarter to 8, supposed to be at work at 8, you know, kind of tough to be at work at 8 if you get up a quarter to 8. Alcoholic can do it, but it's hard on them. It's, I mean, we're quick. That's, uh, you know, and... uh and I'm starting to have marital difficulties. My wife, you know, my, uh, my wife's uh, father was a guy who came home every night at 5 o'clock. He was just as regular as clockwork. He was a great guy. And I'm not regular, you know. I am sporadic, if anything. And uh, the, uh, you know, and she's seeing less of me when we're married than she did when we dated, you know. And, uh, you know, she's starting to get irritated. She's asking me questions like, isn't one of the places you're supposed to be practicing the program is in your home? That's none of your business. You've got your program, I've got my program. I mean, I don't, you should be grateful that I'm sober. What the hell, I mean, you know, we don't. And, uh, you know, if she was a nurse, she'd get up at six to be at work at seven. You know, I'd still be in bed. I'd go, you know, I'd come home at five o'clock occasionally. She'd broil something, because all she could do is broil. And, uh, then I'd, then I'd go to the meeting, and I wouldn't get home from the meeting until about 11.30, and she'd be asleep. So this is going, you know, she's going to Allen on two nights a week, and, this is not, you know, she's not a real happy camper about this. She's not real happy about going to Al Anon, you know, but she's going to be a good wife and she's doing it. And she's not real pleased about how sobriety is showing up in her home. I'm still a little irregular. And we started to have kids. 
And uh, my parents were great parents. They literally were great parents. But even great parents make a few mistakes. And I wasn't going to make the mistakes my mom and dad did, and I didn't. I made all the mistakes they made in a bunch they never thought of. <laughs> I was loud, impatient, angry, and sometimes violent with my kids. I'm not proud of that, but that is a description of how I was. But my rage is an issue that's been around in our family, I think, for a couple of generations. I would like to be the person to make the contribution to get rage out of our family. You know, I, uh, it's not a fun issue to have in a family. Uh, I had a money problem. I spent three or four hundred dollars more a month than I made. If you do that over a long period of time, you'll end up in debt. Just now, I just want to report that to you in case you're running that one. And, uh, it's, and I had uh, a gambling problem. It was more like a hobby. Uh, <laughs> Four or five hours a day, three or four days a week. But it was, you know, but I was making about ten grand a year playing backgammon, and it was kind of like a second job. So it was kind of, you know, I thought it was okay. And these problems I had were not quarterly or annual problems; they were daily problems. I had every one of these problems when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was. But I, it's like during my first year, I never even noticed them. It was kind of like on a honeymoon. I was just so enthralled with going to meetings and learning the stuff that you learn as a newcomer. I just, I don't know, there was a period of just kind of that pink cloud sort of thing. I just couldn't get enough of it. I just wanted to be around it all the time. And AA was, the, and I spent, I, I think AA was the only place in my life that worked. Or I don't even know how well it worked early on, but it seemed to me that was the only place that people were patting me on the back, telling me I was doing good and keep coming back, because they weren't patting me on the back at work, because I wasn't there very often. And uh, my creditors weren't patting me on the back. I'm not sure why. And Linda was not quite as positive as, you know, she was later. And uh, so in my second year of sobriety, I started to get in touch with my defective character. I didn't, I guess my first year I did a fourth and fifth step when I was sober about three months, and my first fourth and fifth step was kind of talking about the horrible behavior I had. It was the stuff that I did. I really didn't get into the nature of my wrongs. I really didn't get into the causes and conditions. I didn't have any insight into it. I don't know how many of us do have that deep insight, maybe the first time we do a fourth and fifth step, but I, I did not. But one by one, I got my defective character handed to me over the over my second and third year of sobriety. And one by one, I took them on, and I really tried to change them. My idea was, you got me sober, I'm well. I'll, you know, I had to know how to work. I had to know how to be a husband. I had to know how to be a father. I, know, I had to know how to manage money. It isn't like I didn't know what to do. I just couldn't do it. And, you know, as I started to enlarge the list and get in touch with what I wasn't doing very well, you know, the first thing, when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, the very first thing that I, that was necessary for me to do in order to stay in AA is I had to tear the wall down I had built up between you and me. In my drinking, I built a wall up so that I could hide the things I didn't want you to see. And the idea was, it's that you like me, but you only like what I like to see about me. If you could see everything about me, you'd just like me because I hate me. And who knows more what a lousy, crummy person I am than me. As people used to say, I was walking around comparing my inside with your outside. And when I came to AA, I had to tear that wall down. Clancy said that if there ever was a flag, we could all pledge our allegiance to the flag would say, but I'm different. I'm unique. <laughs> if you hang on to your uniqueness too greatly, you're going to die. Because if you hang on to your uniqueness, you're not going to believe that what works in my life will work in yours. You have to lose the uniqueness enough. And I got sick enough and hurt enough and afraid enough and scared enough that I tore that wall down when I came to AA and tore it completely down my fifth step and I made a discovery. The discovery was that I'm not unique. My personality may be unique, but not my illness, not my behavior, not my feelings, not my experience. And I started to have a sense of hope that what worked in your life could work in mine. 
But as they got sober, and I think young people get physically well pretty fast, as they got sober, brick by brick, I built my wall back up in AA. My idea was, you know, I started to have problems that I didn't think I should have it a year. A year seemed like a big piece of change. I mean, you know, Clancy talks about now, you know, if you've got a year of sobriety, he doesn't want you on his property. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a different, you know. But when I got a year, I mean, my expectations of what your life should be like with a year of sobriety, I had high expectations. I, when I stopped measuring my sobriety in months, which is, I was, you know, I wanted to get a year of sobriety. I didn't want to wait 12 months to get it, but I wanted to get a year of sobriety. You know, I was starting to have problems that I didn't think a guy sober a year should have, so I started to hide. And when I was sober two and three years, and little by little, I didn't even know I was doing it. I was, I had a pretty good relationship with Warren. I was going to the meetings with him three or four nights a week. We were going out and doing a lot of 12 step work. My sponsor was the champion 12 stepper at our club. And so I got this, you know, I mean, Warren was the perfect guy for me because he got me active in just every aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm out doing all this stuff, and I'm, uh, you know, and I'm telling Warren about 65% of what's going on. And uh, I didn't even know it then, you know. And I, I figured Warren just didn't get it. Warren's really laid back. I'm really nervous. I kind of vibrate, you know. And Warren just never seemed very upset when I talked to him about my problems. And now that I'm 55 years old, as Warren was, when I, you know, or Warren was only 45 when I came in. Now when I'm sponsoring these 25-year-olds, I don't expect their lives to be perfect. Warren didn't expect my life to be problem-free. I was the one who expected my life. But you know what I thought recovery was? I thought recovery was the absence of problems. Because you would have asked me to define, no one told me that. No one told, I made it up all by myself. It was, a, it was a, I mean, it was, it was a piece of truth. I mean, I, I'm, but I believed it. I'm, I'm, I'm just dead serious when I said I thought recovery was the absence of problems. So when I had problems, I felt bad about it. I, you know, so I'm saying, thanks a lot for helping me with a drinking problem. Stay out of my marriage. Put a brick up. You Thanks a lot for helping me with a drinking problem. Stay out of my sex life. Stay out of my finances. Stay out of my parenting. You know, brick by brick, sober in AA, I built my wall back up. So I got these problems that I've been working on. You know, new guy comes in the club. I get him a cup of coffee. I'm sober five or six years. I sit him down. He tells me, you know, brings in his bushel basket full of manure and tells me the problems with, you know, the, all the problems with the law and the money and his spouse and kids, and I say, hey, as horrible as it is and as bad as it seems, you're in the right place. I'm really glad you're here tonight. I know you're not going to believe what I'm going to say to you. I'm going to say it anyway. This is a stay here, and you don't drink. Read the book. Try to put the steps in your life. Get a sponsor. You're going to be okay. See that guy over there? Two years ago, his life was just as messy as you could believe it, and today he's knocking it out of the park. I'm really glad you're here. It's going to be okay. Then I'd get in the car at 11 o'clock at night and I'd drive home. And I'd say, Bob, when's it going to be okay for you? <laughs> I mean, you're six years sober. You just bought a $400 sport coat at a store that you had a $300 bill at and you charged it. You went out for coffee the night after the meeting and you bought and your checking account was 100 bucks overdrawn. When are you going to stop doing that? When are you going to learn how to work? When are you going to be nicer and kinder to your wife and kids? When are you going to stop gambling? I didn't have any answers to that. And I'll tell you, I can remember the first time, about the time that I heard John talk, I was uh, sober about six years. And I got, you know, it took me two or three years to get in touch with my defects of character. And then I started to work on them. And the failing of those defects of character and the hiding of them over a period of time, and I'm sober six or seven years, and I listened to John. And he just literally, I started crying when he was about five minutes into his talk, and I just cried the whole Galvin talk. And because 
How could you be in a program that had enough power to take John from where he was in prison to where he was when he gave that talk at Gopher State? And how could I be sitting there with my chicken crap little problem? You know, with my checking account overdrawn. You know, with my marriage being a little out of tune. You know, you're listening. I mean, the fact is, is that most of us have listened to those profound stories. We know that there's enough power in this program. We know the program works, but a hell of a lot of us are sitting there with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years, and I mean, there's serious issues. There's marriages. <laughs> they end life. You know, it isn't like you're not serious. It's life. It's everything you get. And I, I mean, I want to change it so bad. I am, you know, I'm, a re- I'm doing all the things that I think you're supposed to do in AA. You know, I'm giving talks, I'm active, I'm doing 12-step work, I'm active in the service, I'm going to five or six meetings, I'm doing all the deal, and it seems like my life's going backwards. It seems like I'm on the down escalator going up. Every time I pause and take a breath, you know, I'm going down two steps. And I said, I mean, it is just, I mean, I'm serious. I'm sober six or seven years, and I think, God, do I got to go to Gamblers Anonymous? You know, I got to go to Spenders Anonymous? I mean, do I, if I had to go to a pro- program for every problem I had, I mean, I would have been a busy kid. And, but it seemed like, you know, and I thought, you know, I'm just a good starter. I'm a crappy finisher. I've been like this all my life. I've been pretty well equipped, you know. My mother always said, Bob, you're not very bright. Dress well. And, uh, you know, I was always, you know, I test well. I just don't work well. I interview well. I just don't do the job well. Or I used to interview well. <laughs> Recently, I haven't interviewed as well as I used to. And, uh, but I'm sober six or seven years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm, I'm at the edge of the door. I really... I'm feeling like AA is not working for me. I'm in meetings and everybody's still, you know, thinking I'm a pretty good member of AA and they're patting me on the back and I'm saying, you know, what is this, phony? I mean, you guys see my life all the time. Can't you tell, even though I'm hiding it, even though I'm hiding it, can't you tell it's not working? I mean, can't you see it in my wife's face? I mean, it's not working. You know, and if we talk about how close we are and how we know each other's secrets and, uh, you know, supportive, you know, I'm down. I'm 57 years sober, and I'm telling you, I'm going to six meetings a week, and I'm done. And the problem, I, you know, the two things that have saved my backside in Alcoholics Anonymous is, number one, is I I love the old man, you know, and I had teachers. I had a sponsor who was a great teacher, and I had other men and women who were sober a hell of a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew what the answer was. The other thing that has helped me is I had trouble keeping my mouth shut. And eventually... You also have that problem. <laughs> and eventually, what that has allowed me to do is I end up talking to someone about it, which, which is what you got to do. And I knew what the answer was, uh, intuitively. I don't know if I could have written it down on a piece of paper. And the answer was to have a better relationship, a deeper relationship with the God of your understanding. Okay? That's what the people who I admired in Alcoholics Anonymous, that old man being one of them, had that I didn't have. But the problem is, is if you're gambling and not doing a very good job of being a parent, you're a horse's ass with your wife, you're spending more money than you're making, you're as much debt as seven years of sobriety deserve when you came in, and you're working about two hours a day. How do you go to God and say, God, help me? You know, what the hell is God going to say? I mean, I, 
I felt like as soon as I go to God, the first thing God's going to say to me is, I'm going to say, what do I do? God's going to say, what's wrong with What do you mean, what do you do? I'm going to get dumb? Stop gambling. Get up in the morning. Go to work. Stay at work. Now, there's a concept. <laughs> be loving and kind to your children and be gentle with your wife. Don't spend more money than you make. I'm going to say, hell, if I knew how to do all those things, I wouldn't need God. I mean, what's the, what's the sense of going to try to develop a relationship with God if you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship? I mean, I, I, I knew, I, I thought I knew what God wanted me to do. I just flat couldn't do it. And I was in that place for almost two years, from six, six years of sobriety to eight years of sobriety. And I don't think the time is so important, but I'm going to tell you something. I think most alcoholics, have their, my wife says I use the word ass too much, but I'm going to use it again. They have their ass fall off sometime between five and ten years of survival. I think we deal with the issues that we identify early on in our sobriety pretty effectively in the first couple of years of our sobriety, but we aren't very insightful with the first two years of sobriety and we don't always know that. And it seems like you get the physical aspect and it's like the mental and spiritual parts of the disease go underground. And they start to express themselves in other areas of our lives and we get compulsive or obsessive behavior. You know, so some people eat too much, some people, you know, gamble, some people get angry, some, you know, I, you know, some people are specialists. I was a generalist. I had five or six, you know, I, you know. But I don't know anybody who gets a free, a free ride. I literally have not met a person who had a real dose of alcoholism that didn't have at least one or two very significant issues that they had to deal with in sobriety. John talks, you hear people use different words. Frank will talk about it tomorrow. You know, you talk about crossing the line. If you don't cross the line, I don't know what it is that you can, you know, it's, it's really funny. I, 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 I'm a guy who's talking about problems in sobriety. I wouldn't go back and change anything I did for all the same things. I, I, it sounds like my early sobriety might not have been very good. My early sobriety was fine. I'm a guy who's now looking back on it, talking about it in a critical sense. But, you know, there were pieces of it that were really pretty damn good. I mean, I was doing some things right during that period of time. It wasn't like it was all bad, and it was, you know. And I was making progress. It's a funny thing, I'll tell you. When I said I, I thought I was not making progress, you know what happens when you go on a journey? You know, as you start to move forward in your trip, you run into what's in your way. So as I started my journey of sobriety and awakening, what did I run into? I ran into my sex life. I ran into my parenting. I ran into my anger. I ran into my excesses. I ran into what was blocking me and what I had to deal with. You know, some people have no issues with money. They just want, you know, Frank. If I could, you know, Frank would have gotten me under his arm when I had 10 years of sobriety and handled the money part of my life. I would never have had an issue. Okay? I mean, you know, that's not his issue. You know, his issue was being critical of his friends. I, that, I had... But I mean, but I think he's going to work on that, and I expect him to talk a little about that tomorrow. The uh, I tell you something. Thank God that you know I got to deal with Frank, and I got to deal with Jerry Jones, and I got to deal with two or three guys. And our deal is is to tell it like it is. My request of him is if you see something in me that is a little out of tune, I expect you to say something. I do not want to ever 
you know, for me to get way out in the weeds, you know, and for, or, you know, heaven forbid that I should ever get drunk. If someone say afterwards, I saw it coming, you know, I would much rather have someone walk up and, you know, and say it like it is, and he is one of the men in my life that I rely on for that function. And I'll tell you, you, you need people that have that kind of care and respect and love for you. So I'm stuck in this place. I don't know where the hell I was in my eighth office. Uh, so I'm in the stock, and I'm, 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 I'm trying to, you know, I'm stuck with all these problems. I'm eight years sober. I'm just an absolute mess. I'm kind of hiding some of the issues. I'm feeling like a bad member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Out of desperation, I went back to the steps, and I found out what powerlessness and unmanageability meant to me eight years sober. Okay. wasn't very hard to figure out. I was clearly powerless and unmanageable. The thing that blew my mind was step two. I believe, you know, I could put my hand on the lie detector and said, do you believe God's going to restore his sanity? I would say yes. And the needle would not move an inch. But if you would have said, do you believe God's going to restore Bob's sanity? At eight years of sobriety, if I would have said yes, the needle would have been all over the map because I'm eight years sober and my ass is falling off and I'm going backwards. I know I lost the belief in the second step somewhere in the middle of my sobriety. And I think when you're in trouble, you either get more active or less active. And I got more active, and I found a miracle again. I started to see people with bigger problems, with smiles on their faces, walking through walls that I was trying to go around. And I came to believe, again, that God would restore me to sanity. I took step three on my knees with my sponsor in his office. I'd not done that before. That was kind of embarrassing. We didn't do that much where I'm from, but I thought, heck, I'm just, I don't want to miss anything. So I did it. And, uh, I did a fourth step and I went, I did a fifth step. The previous three fifth steps that I did, I did with, uh, previous two fifth steps I did, I did with clergy. And my third fifth step I did with my sponsor. And I said, when you're done, be careful because I'm going to do whatever you recommend. And one of the things he recommended at the end of it was that I go to a psychologist. And I tell you, I did not want to do that. I don't, and I'm not trying to sell going to psychology. But I had a lot of issues around success and failure. My father was a successful man. I had this idea I'll never be as good as my own man. And I had a lot of issues about work and money and success and failure. And I was failing. I was in a business that was going down the street. I'm only working two hours a day. I wonder why, you know, it's a mystery. What's not, what's wrong with this picture? So I go to the psychologist. He said, can you get your parents involved? I said, no. I said, my parents have been involved with me a long time. If you can't help me, please refer me to someone who can help me without getting my mom and dad involved. He said, well, you get your wife involved. Oh. You know, when you get your wife involved, you've got a whole different set of information. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a, I mean, they see it so different. I thought, yeah, I'll get Linda involved. We get the kids involved. Well, they're pretty young, but, yeah. I don't know enough time to, I kind of lost myself in the thought, but that was one of the most important things I have done in my society. And it was important for me because I made a discovery. And the discovery was, was how afraid I was. If you would have asked me what the biggest issue in my life was, I would have said anger. And you would have had people in my family that would have agreed with that. Okay? But anger was my response to this. And I was a guy, I was afraid of me. I was a salesman who didn't make sales calls. I just phoning up the activity report. I mean, I, I wouldn't even take the chance to grab me by the throat and pull me over the desk and force me to sell you something. Because <laughs> I wasn't there. And I remember this guy said, why are you so afraid of failing? And I, and I wanted to pull a nose off his face. I said, listen to you, Dad. I said, 
you're a doctor. I said, you fail, you just take your little sign, go down the hall, put it on another door, and you're making a hundred grand. You know? <laughs> you know, I said, I'm about to go bankrupt in my business, and I'm going to lose everything I have. And he looked at me, and he looked at Linda, and he said, if Bob lost everything he had, would he lose you? Pretty good question. Linda said, hell no, it wouldn't lose me. He looked at Billy and Peter. He said, if your father lost everything he had, would he lose you? He said, hell no. You know, if you can't lose, you can't play. I was the guy who had the football uniform on. I did the Keller studies. I did the locker room. But when they blew the whistle to block and tackle, I went up in the stands and said, I don't block and tackle. <laughs> Trouble is with life is there's no stand. I thought I was in a stand. I literally, I promise you, I thought I, I thought I had a free ride. I thought I was in a stand. There are no stands. It's all playing. Oh, God. I remember I was about two weeks after I, I had that session with a psychologist that was home on my living room. I had one of the worst days in sobriety. I got up late, went to work late, left early, got in the back gammon game. I won about 600 bucks. I missed dinner. I missed the AA meeting and I came home and got in a fight with my wife and slapped one of the kids. One of those nights where you'd like to have a videotape and sent to the general service office to show what eight years of sobriety can do for you. I'll tell you, you feel so damn bad. You, you know, you just, I'm, I hate hitting myself. I just I mean, I had lots of examples of people who knew how to live. And I'm eight years sober, and I just hated it. And I said to myself, see, it happened again. It happened again. I mean, weren't you there? It's your life. Wake up. <laughs> and I'm saying, yeah, but it's, it's so habitual. It's almost like it happens by, it's almost like I'm in a blackout. I mean, I don't even have to think about it. It's just, and all of a sudden I realized I was a bunch of crap. That my life was the way it was, not by accident. It was the way it was because I designed it that way. I sounded like a guy who wanted not to gamble. I was the guy who wanted to gamble whenever the hell I wanted to gamble for as much money as I wanted to gamble and not have problems because of gambling. But if I talked to my sponsor, I sounded like a guy who wanted to quit gambling. I was the guy who wanted his wife and children to love him without spending time with them. I wanted money without work. Not a good design. All of a sudden I realized that night, you know, there's a power in truth. I believe when I came in AA that I was given the opportunity when I tore that wall down to stand naked in front of my alcoholism. And I saw it in a way that I had never seen it before, and I believe it altered me. I believe that the conversation I had with those two men in that booth altered my life with the truth. I drank again, but I promise you those two times I drank was not true. I never drank with the abandon or sense that I knew I, I was just kidding myself. The truth changed me. That night in my living room, eight years sober, I realized that I had tried as hard as I know to try to clean my act up and I had failed and I all of a sudden had a sense that it was okay, that I was where I was supposed to be, and I was given the opportunity to take the sixth and the seventh step of AA. The sixth step said that we were entirely ready to have God remove our defects. The seventh step said that we humbly asked to remove our shortcomings. I had spent eight years trying to get rid of them. I don't have the power to get rid of them. It happens through me, not by me. I am the pipe, not the well. I 
doctor doesn't heal, he creates an aseptic environment, creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place and God heals. The farmer doesn't grow, he creates an atmosphere, a fertile environment, plants the seeds, creates an atmosphere in which growth can take place and God grows, and we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place and God changes us. I think the atmosphere is the attitude of the fifth and the seventh step and the three requirements of being honest, open-minded, and being willing. What does the program The program doesn't promise an absence of promise. The program promises a spiritual awakening. What has happened to me over a period of time, Chuck just talked about every, I remember when Chamberlain came to talk at Gopher State, and we all used to gather around and he'd take a hotel room and there'd be like 35 of us crammed in the living room sitting down at this guy's feet. And I remember what he said. The man committing rape right now is doing the best he knows according to his life. When he said that, I tell you, I just almost couldn't listen. I didn't, I just almost couldn't listen. Then he said something to me. He said, son, you're not going anywhere. You already are everything you're ever going to be. You're as good as you're ever going to be. And I, I, he looked at me and he said, I can tell you don't like that message very well. Hell, I didn't understand it. I had no idea what he was saying to me. I do today. I'll come back to that. That night, I got down on my knees at the sixth and the seventh step, and five of the major problems I was dealing with in my life disappeared. Such, I believe, is the power of the program and the power of God and the power of the step. I'll tell you something, but when you're really serious to make a change, you go about it differently because you are teachable. Okay? I'm a guy that when I go on a diet, I go buy a quart of ice cream and a bag of cookies. It's the last time I'm going to eat. Just all, it is. I'll probably never have ice cream again. It's already been a bad day. I'm just going to top it off. You know. So if you've been there and got the T-shirt on that one, you know that we've made lots of promises and we are unable to. Promises don't always get it done. Resolutions don't always get it done. That night, when I had the change that happened to me, my heart changed. I looked at my life with it. I stood in front of the truth, naked, of my life at eight years of sobriety. I took the six and the seven steps. The next day, I gave my wife my checkbook. My wife doesn't have the issues with money that I have. She can pay a third of a bill. Damnedest thing I have ever seen. I always thought if you paid a third of it, they'd think you didn't have the money. You know, but she, I mean, she had us straightened out in about six months. I started to date my wife. I've dated my wife every Friday night for the last 24 years. And when I'm gone on Friday night, it's another night for you. It's a real, live, dangerous day. No one, it's just the two of us. No, we know that one night a week, we have each other's undivided attention. I had her love and affection. It was everybody else's love and affection. I had to go back and learn how to be with my, I had to, we were always talking about business. stuff, money. That wasn't how we fell in love with each other. I mean, I'll tell you, that wasn't the conversation we had when, you know, we were in the backseat of the automobile and we were dating a colleague. I promise you. I mean, it was, so I had to go back and learn how to be with my wife in a way that we were attractive to each other. God, that was important. I spent thousands of dollars, thousands and hundreds of hours learning how to be a better parent. I think being a parent takes 125% of whatever you got. I mean, it's tough. You know, you know, we don't feel good about it. I mean, one way we feel blessed to have children in recovery. And another way, you feel like you screwed something up because your kids are alcoholics. You know, it's, I mean, it's just, you know, you, it's, but it's just there. You got a message, you know, at one level, you know that you aren't responsible for, you're, you're responsible to your children, not for your children. But 
And another way, culturally, your children reflect on you and you have some of your identification. And when our kids were having problems, we didn't feel like we were doing it very well. And so, but I'll tell you, my heart changed that day when I took those steps and I started to put structures into my life that allowed me to, to support those changes that I wanted to go through. And my life took off like a rocket ship. I was in the real estate investment business and it was just the right time and all of a sudden I made lots and lots of money and and uh you know there's problems with failure, which I experienced my first years of AA and Warren and I have talked about this and in some way I think my failure was a blessing. Part of it is that I was an enormously active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I'd like to think that if I were successful in my early years, I would have been as active. But I'm not sure. And and I'm I built my foundation. I don't. I, you don't have to be a failure to be an active member of AA. That's not my message. <laughs> my biggest fear was Frank. I always said, Frank, at the end of my life, I hope they don't say, God, his life was a mess. Boy, he gave a great talk. <laughs> that was always my biggest fear. And uh, so I, I mean, I started to make a lot of money, and everything I touched turned to gold. And you know, had the big house and Mercedes and all that kind of stuff. And then in 1986, they passed the Tax Act, and in 1989, I was bankrupt for all practical purposes. I lost millions of dollars. You know, had to get rid of the big house, all the cars. You know, and at 22 years of sobriety, I got a kid in treatment, and I'm going bankrupt. You know, so I'll tell you, not a fun period of time. But I tell you something, if you're going to stay sober, if you're going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for your life, you can't avoid life. I kind of excused myself. I mean, I made mistakes which brought me to bankruptcy. Okay? But if you're sober 30 years, you're going to get your turn in the barrel. I promise you. You just, you just don't. I mean, you, I mean, there are divorces. There are deaths. There are business failures. There are health issues. There are children issues. There are just there is life. We are not, you know, we're not promised the absence of problems. We're promised to be awake. I'll tell you something. Don't underestimate what I just said. Being awake maybe is all there is. Most of what the problems I had in my first 15 years of sobriety, I had in my sleep. But there comes a day where maybe you go to strike a child and you are awake enough to see the look in the child's eye. When I woke up, I stopped striking children. There comes a time when you have a conversation with your wife and you see the look in her face. When you're asleep, you don't see the look. Change is not easy. Change is difficult. We don't like it. We think it's like death. We do. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about the stages of death and dying. You know, talked about anger, denial, bargaining, you know, depression and acceptance, you know, cancer. Doc says you got cancer, you're angry. Why the hell is this happening to me? Denial. Well, maybe it's not. I'll go get a second opinion. When you get to the second opinion, you start bargaining with God. You know, God takes this away from me and I'll, you know, devote my life to you. But when you get through those three things and it won't go away, you get in front of the issue and you get experience a depression. I'm not trying to play doctor, I'm not talking about clinical, I'm talking about appropriate depression to the problem and issues you are faced with. But Scott Peck in his book talked about, but if you allow depression to do its work, interesting phrase, which I will tell you from my experience is to grind the ego to dust. Chamberlain, 
give a talk at the Peach Tree Conference. We didn't talk very much outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. We gave a talk to all the experts in the field of alcoholism, and I was there just before he went, and I was at a conference when he came back, and someone asked him, Chuck, what did you think of the experts in alcoholism? And in one sentence, he didn't very, he didn't very often use this one sentence, but in this case, he said they don't know much about surrender. Maybe that's all we have. But that's the answer. How the hell would you tell someone? How would you grab someone right now that you're trying to sponsor and tell them how to surrender? You know, there's so much teaching today about the AA steps. You see so and so on the steps, and we all have done seminars, and you're a little embarrassed. They got tapes out there, you know, Bob and the 12 steps. You know, you listen to my tape three times in a row, you probably have a relapse. I mean, you just make goddamn sure that you put someone out. Okay. But they're, no, but you get the impression, like, you know, there's, this is somehow authorized or, you know, real special or something like that. On the other hand, we're taught to share our experience, right, and hopefully we're asked to, but it's a love-hate relationship with some of this tape stuff that goes on because you worry about, you know, it's just awkward. But if surrender is the answer, you know, and, and we got, well, it's a, it's today there is more teaching about the program and steps than there has ever been. Big book seminars and all this stuff, and, and there's, most of it's pretty good. But there's, sometimes you get the impression that this program is mechanical. That you can describe how to do it. I'll tell you something, it's not. It is spiritual. If it were mechanical, every time we had a problem, all we'd have to do is tuck our heels and take the third step prayer and we'd be back in Kansas. I mean, there was, but I'll tell you, there are times when you say the third step prayer, you put your heels and no one's home. Because it is not, there's nothing wrong, I mean, in the absence of doing anything else, I'd sure as hell do it mechanically. I've done it mechanically, uh, recently. <laughs> so, so I'm not putting it down, I'm just telling you that it ain't just mechanical. The steps are not just about doing, the steps are about being. An alteration in how you be and who you are. And when you change how you be, if you're going to look for surrender, if you're going to turn your will and your life over to the care of God, there's an attitude you have to have in the process. There's a self type of honesty you have to have in the process. There's a sense of humility you have to have in the process. And I don't, you just can't guarantee, you just can't grab that by the throat and say, I'm going to have that tomorrow. And yet, that's our answer. Our answer lies in our weakness, not our strength. But most of us get pretty smart. I could take a test, and I, I, you know, always have the answer. But I don't always have the power. I don't always have the power. So what's the difference? I'm 30, almost 31 years old. The answer is, is that you've changed me in this process. God has changed me. You've awakened me. What has happened to me is that the first, almost the first, 15 or 20 years of my sobriety, I was a monkey on a string. I was like a shoot box. You put a quarter in the machine and you push B5 and I played B5. There was just no choice. What the hell else would you do when a, you've got that jerk in front of you doing what he's doing? How could you not take him out? I think God's requesting that I take him out, you know. Uh, but there was a thought response, thought response, thought response. No space, no opportunity. What I saw was printed on my eyeball. It was my reality. There was no space. I responded to my reality the best I could. 
In 30 years in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have little by little awakened through the process of sponsorship, of going to meetings, and taking the steps. You have awakened me enough that now I get a thought and I have a gap. And most of the time, I have a choice. I know enough to know that the way I see things is not reality. It may seem real, but it is not reality. And I get a thought, and I still have the same issues. You know, I still have a tendency towards anger. I still have a tendency towards money. I still have a tendency towards lots of different things. But I get a thought today, and then I often get a choice. And in that space that you have given me, I am a human being. I am no longer an animal. I am no longer a machine. I have a choice more often today than I have ever had in my life. I'm in love with my wife. I have a good relationship with my children, although it's still the most demanding area of my life. I'm self-supporting through my own contributions. My life has more order today than it has ever had. Thank you for my life. Thank <laughs> you.